Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. Hey, in this episode, we talk with Chris Yaden of the Unique Foundation. He's the executive director over there. But before we get into that, you need to know that if you're brand new to Leading Saints, what we are. We're a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And one way we do that is through this podcast. And we welcome you as one of our listeners. And we encourage you to go to leadingsaints.org and check out the many resources there as well. Make sure you're subscribed to the weekly newsletter, social medias, you know, you know the drill. So this episode is a powerful one. It's a little bit heavy, but these are topics that we need to discuss and talk about. And it's these are topics that we need to talk about in our local communities and wards and stakes. But a lot of times leaders think, I don't know how to talk about something as heavy as abuse, especially sexual abuse. We know it's happening out there. We pray that it's not happening too close to home, but it is more often than we'd like to uh, admit at times. And so Chris Yaden, who is actually a former stake president himself, understands these dynamics of talking about these very difficult subjects in the context of, of the church. And we had a fantastic discussion about what to be aware of the awareness of it, right? And the facts, the statistics, how can we know if it's happening closer to home than we might anticipate? And then how do we go about just talking about sexual abuse in the context of our wards or stakes and the power that that has for those victims who may be hiding behind shame and may be isolated? How can we bring them to a place where they feel more comfortable being open about it and seeking help? And how can we build a library of resources to send them to. The statistics are sobering on this, and no family, no individual is safe from it. And so we definitely need to be proactive. And that's why I'm so glad we have foundations like the Unique Foundation uh, run by Chris Yaden uh, and, and people like him who can help us think through these things. So you're definitely going to enjoy this and share it. Uh, this is an important topic. So here's my interview with Chris Yaden, the executive director of the Unique Foundation. Today, I am in Lehigh, Utah at the corporate office of the Unique Foundation with Chris Yaden. How are you, Chris? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, you're the executive director. We have the same job title. Yes. Uh, but your office is much nicer than my <laughs> office. <laughs> well, we feel spoiled, that's for sure. Awesome. So um, give us a background. What uh, What is the, the un- Unique Foundation? The Unique Foundation, at its very core, works every day to eradicate sexual abuse and its impacts. So we serve specifically adult women who are sexually abused as children and help them take steps towards healing. And then we empower parents through education to reduce the risk that their children will be abused or to know how to respond if their children have been through abuse. So 
again, at the heart of it, it's eradicating sexual abuse and its impacts. Um, but we do it through a lot of different means and ways. Yeah. Now, and there's probably some listening thinking, wait a minute, the the unique, the, no, that's that lady down the street who's uh, trying to push uh, makeup products on me. What, what's the connection yeah. there? Yeah. So uh, fortunately, we have a tremendous partnership with Unique Products, which is a cosmetics company uh, in that our founders are the same founders. And they used uh, quite a bit of their success from that for-profit venture to help fund us and get us started. Outside of that, we're very separate. We're separate entities. We're a public charity. We're not tied to the cosmetics company. We're very grateful for them because they yeah. continue to donate in big ways to our cause and what we do. And we're certainly grateful for the founders because they're obviously our biggest supporters and help us move forward our mission. Yeah. And I know whether it's on your website or the unique website that, I mean, their story is incredible. You know, listen to some of Especially Derek, he went through some cancer treatments and yeah. things. It's remarkable. It is. It's, it's a pretty amazing story. They're great people. You couldn't find better people to help you do such important work as we do. Yeah, for sure. So how did you get involved in this type of work? I mean, is, were you always interested in the nonprofit uh, field? I know I wasn't, but yeah. I ended up here. But what about you? It, it's an interesting story and kind of a long story, and I'll try to to shorten it. And actually goes back to my own personal church service. So some years ago, I uh, served as a stake president and received very, very specific guidance at a stake conference from an Area 70 that we needed to become experts in combating pornography. So we took that to heart as a stake presidency, and we went to work, and we learned everything we could around the topic of combating pornography and how we do that in the church. Well, inevitably, that led me to learn a lot about sexual exploitation of all sorts, including sexual abuse, the impacts of sexual abuse, how it is tied to other issues that we deal with. And I really see that as the root of preparing me for this position. From a career standpoint, I, I was my expertise was executive management in startups. Mm. And those were all for-profit companies that had nothing to do with nonprofit work. But when the Maxfields, who I'd worked with previously in a different company, asked me to come run the foundation, it was really easy for me to say yes. I had gained a lot of experience and learning in my ecclesiastical life. Combine that with my expertise in the business sector, and the two came together. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I had to surround myself with amazing experts who know far more than I do about the topic and issue. But certainly my my both church and career experience led to me being here. Yeah, and that's why I was excited. You know, I came to a presentation a few months back where you talked about the foundation. And uh, after talking, you mentioned that you'd been a stake president. I thought this is perfect because you really do understand sort of both sides of, you know, as far as in the church context, as far as maybe what the victim's going through, but also what the what the leader struggles with, you know, obviously every leader, I can, I can imagine finding a leader who doesn't want to be a awesome resource and help a victim who's uh, been abused and help them find hope and recovery and healing from that. And, uh, but a lot of time we just don't know, we, we don't know. And, yep. and, you know, and you've seen that from that perspective as well. So, so give us some of the, like the stats of this, I mean, cause that's really what stood out. And, and I'm sure you can rattle many of these things just off the top of your head. Like, just help us because I don't know, we feel like we know there's a problem out there, but mm -hmm. maybe sometimes we don't realize 
the magnitude of the problem or we don't realize it's just down the street or it's easy to think, oh yeah, that happens in maybe, you know, more impoverished areas or, or whatever it is, but uh, help us understand the realities of, of this issue. Yeah. It's, we're going through an interesting journey right now as a society, both here in the United States and broadly throughout the world over the last couple of years of awakening to the reality of sexual abuse and sexual exploitation generally. We really have had it hidden, and it's been under the rug, if you will. We knew it was there, but we haven't really realized how big it was, but we're starting to as a society. So when I share these stats, when I shared them five years ago, people are like, what? Right. When I share them today, they're like, uh, yeah, I get it. I've heard a lot mm. more from people that have been through this, and I, I realize this is going on a lot. So, And with that as background, there's a lot of studies, and each study varies a little bit in stats, but generally speaking, the studies land on these stats. Somewhere between one and and three and one in seven girls will be sexually abused by age 18. We use one in four. We feel like that's the most consistent. For boys, it's a little broader. You'll see from anywhere from about one in five to about one in 20. We like the one in six stat because it's the research done by the CDC and we feel like it's uh, the most reliable yeah. one that's been around the longest. So when you say abuse, like, because usually my mind goes to the worst of the worst, like, wow, I can't imagine that many that are going through that. But so what constitutes abuse or what falls into those yeah. that research? That's an interesting question, too, because it varies a lot on the study. Yeah. And that's why you see a lot of differences in studies yeah. is they define abuse differently. We define abuse here at the Unique Foundation as any one unwanted coercion or force into sexual activity. So uh, I'll just give you an example. If I was a 14-year-old boy and I stumbled across pornography, that wouldn't be abuse. But if my dad sat down and and made me look at it as a 14-year-old, we would constitute that as abuse. So that's what we mean by being forced or coerced into sexual activity. So that's on the furthest end. And then obviously the most grave end would be something such as rape. Yeah. Then there's everything in between. Yeah. Right. And I'm glad you explained that because sometimes I'll hear these stats and, and I'm never quite sure because sometimes people think, well, no, that, you know, I was walking down the street and this guy sort of eyed me in a creepy way. And so, you know, I felt violated. Right. But, Mm -hmm. and obviously that isn't appropriate, but to really understand the seriousness of the problem, it's good to to define it. Right. Yeah. And something like that, we wouldn't constitute as abuse. That's more in the realm of perhaps sexual harassment. Yeah. Like a cat call or something like that would be sexual harassment, but not necessarily. Yeah. Cause there's no consist- force or co- coercion in exactly. that of, of an activity. Yeah. Uh, though, you know, somewhat related, let's say a high school girls walking down the hall in high school and a boy comes up and grabs her breast. It happens every day in our high schools. Mm. That is yeah. a sexual assault. So that would fall under what yeah. we can constitute as abuse. Uh, that's really helpful. Any other uh, stats or perspective to, to give us a foundation of our discussion? Yeah, so a lot of people wonder, okay, where's this coming from? Who's doing it? Um, the statistics show us over and over that between 80 and 90% of abuse is coming from someone the family knows. So it's a trusted relationship. Yeah. The concept of stranger danger, which I grew up with a lot, does happen. It's that 10 to 20%, but it's the exception, not the rule. And so a lot of people, when they think about sexual abuse, they're thinking about, oh, I've got to teach my kids about stranger danger. And is there a creepy guy hiding behind the bush as my teenage daughter's running down the trail? Yeah, You do need to worry about those things. But what's 
often uncomfortable and hard for families to realize is it's usually people in your circle. It's, it's a coach, it's a teacher, it's an uncle, it's an older sibling, it's an older sibling's friend, obviously in our church, church, it's someone at church. Right. And that's where most abuse comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Anything else before we we jump into this? Because we're, we're going to talk in, in the context of just, you know, if we're standing in a room full of, of bishops and stake presidents or relief study presidents, primary leaders, any other foundational things that, that would be important to know about this topic? Yeah, I think it's just important to know it happens in the church. Yeah. Right. And we're certainly haven't avoided it in the church. Uh, it happens in, to church members. You know, it's it happens to families that are engaged with their kids. It's not families that are just neglecting their kids. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you can, as a parent, you can be doing everything right, yeah. and you're still not. To, I mean, yeah. that's just the world we live in, right? Yeah. And uh, with all things. And don't get me wrong, parents have a lot of power to reduce yeah. risk, right? But it happens in every race, religion, culture, every socioeconomic or demographic section, it happens. And the variance isn't huge between one and the other. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really doesn't discriminate. Sexual abuse doesn't discriminate who, who who it impacts. So let's talk about, because sometimes the our church or churches in general get a bad rap, right? This like, well, you know, look at the stats, you know, for for members of the church or, or people, this happens with everything from ice cream to sexual abuse to everything. Like, well, look at Utah. Like, look at those stats. It must be because of the church, right? Mm-hmm. And and we do this automatic connection there, which maybe sometimes it is, maybe it isn't, but how would you re- respond to, you know, this concern about, well, maybe it is because of the church or the structure of the church or some of the cultures or habits of the church? Yeah. So, you know, this one's tough because on one side, my personal opinion is the church has done a tremendous job addressing abuse as a whole, especially over the last several years. They've hit sexual abuse up front. They've done some of the things for since I was a little boy that really reduced the risk. So I feel like the church has been on it in a lot of positive ways. I've had a great experience with using the church's abuse helpline. So I'm a fan of how the church handles it as an organization. Now, when you get down into individual congregations and the application of what the church has taught us, <laughs> yeah. that's where sometimes things go off the rails. Yeah. So there's some things that we struggle with. And one of the things that's really critical for leaders to understand is sexual abuse in particular is often a crime, if you will, of opportunity. Yeah. So the coach or the deacon's quorum advisor that has a risk of perpetrating they have to have the opportunity to perpetrate. And because we like to gather, we like to be together, we support one another, we have an implied trust within the church that we trust one another, it sometimes opens up additional opportunities for our children to be abused that they might not otherwise be open to. Yeah. And so we have to recognize that, and we as leaders need to follow the church's guidelines and guidance that they've put in place to help protect against those, those opportunities. Things like too deep leadership, it's not a nice to have. It is critical if we want to reduce the risk of abuse happening in our congregations. Yeah. Right? That's just one example. It's not something that we can just say, yeah, that, that's nice. That's nice in Utah or that's nice in some of it, someone else's ward. 
we've got to find a way to make it work in our circumstances, no matter where we're serving. The yeah. And especially I feel like leaders, they can fall in this fallacy of like, well, you know, we have the gospel and, and, you know, the gospel changes people and perpetuates righteousness. And so let's just engage in, you know, creating good community and doing these things. And this problem will sort of go away, but it really is a problem. You have to stare right in the face and address. Right? Yeah. You do, and there's a lot of amazing benefits of addressing it. Because sexual abuse has been so taboo for so long, when a church leader will stand up and face the issue, it's amazing what that will do for people in their in their ward, their branch, their stake. Yeah, It gives them permission to say, hey, this has happened to me, and I want to heal. Because the reality is we're dealing with the impacts of abuse every single day as leaders. It just comes on in under another mask. Yeah. It comes in as a secondary issue like drug abuse or alcoholism or pornography or an eating disorder, you know, and it usually comes in the form of someone coming in to our, uh, say, a bishop's office to repent. Well, when they're coming to repent of, let's say, drug issues, there's probably something underneath of it. And almost every case, it's early childhood trauma with sexual abuse being one of the big three of the early childhood trauma. So. Yeah. When a leader stands up and says, hey, let's face this, they're empowering their people to overcome some of the struggles that they've dealt with for many, many years and deal with some of the coping mechanisms that are unhealthy yeah. that they've had for many years. So tell us, I appreciate your your, your personal experience as a stake president, sort of the journey you went on seeing uh, how what, what difference this makes when the leader does start talking about it. Yeah. I was a stake president when I really got involved here at the Unique Foundation, and there was a very stark contrast that happened. It was very eye-opening for me. I had had relatively few members come talk to me about sexual abuse. It had happened. I dealt with the situations where it happened. But after I started working for the Unique Foundation and started acknowledging publicly in my congregations that, hey, we've got to deal with this. There's an issue going on in our community that we need to face as parents and as leaders. I had many, many individuals come saying, hey, I'm a survivor. I dealt with this when I was a child. My child's dealt with this recently. And not only was it true to the statistics in my own neighborhood, from those that came from my own neighborhood, but even in my broader stake, it was fascinating to see how many people, just by me being willing to talk about, said, hey, that's me that's having that issue as well. And because of that, I've been dealing with X, Y, and Z. And now I'm ready to, to talk about my trauma. And when you deal with the root issue as a leader and get the right professionals involved to help you deal with the root issue, a lot of those secondary problems go away. Yeah. The drugs, the alcohol, the marital problems. Yeah. And, and I could take, you know, you take any bishops that's listening to this, they may think like, well, you know, we're in a pretty good area. You know, I get this probably happening somewhere, but I don't know. But then like, look at your schedule. Like what sort of appointments are, are you overwhelmed with the, the pornography addiction or the, you know, compulsion appointment, you know, what's on that? Cause you can get to this, to a point where you're just so overwhelmed by this and you think, ah, I just got to figure out this pornography thing. Like if I can find the right accountability software that I can just <laughs> refer to everybody, then we'll be good. But to realize it's a much deeper problem. And, and if you think it's not in your area, just look at your appointment schedule. Yeah. And, and again, it's not that it's not going to manifest like, Oh, at, at uh, you know, six o'clock tonight, I'm talking about, you know, sexual abuse history, yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's masked in, 
in behavioral issues, right? Well, to your point there, I mentioned kind of in the, the intro that where I got started in all this was in combating pornography. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that we learned in that effort to combat pornography is we learned in almost every case where an individual was struggling with a pornography addiction or compulsion, they had some early childhood issues. It could have been a parent's divorce, could have been death of a loved one. It, it, we saw sexual abuse quite a bit. We saw physical abuse. We saw neglect. So these early childhood traumas were almost always at the root. And that's when the lights clicked on for me that says, the way I deal with pornography and combat pornography, the way we solve that is we have to actually go deal with the early childhood trauma. And I also quickly recognized that as a priesthood leader, my role wasn't to right. deal with that trauma. My role was to get that member to resources that could, professional resources that could deal with that trauma, and for me to be the spiritual counselor and to help them use the, the spiritual components, particularly the Savior's atonement, in that journey. Yeah. And when I learned two, those two things, first, that there was some roots behind the pornography addiction that had to do with something else, and second, that I needed to get professionals involved. I started to have a lot more success yeah. in helping members move forward. And that's the, sort of the liberating, from the li uh, leadership standpoint, it's like so liberating thing. Oh, wait, it's not just me that has to figure out how to handle this pornography issue. Like mm -hmm. once I realize the the issue is much deeper and professionals need to be involved there, then I can spread out this load and we can really get some people some help that it's going to make a difference. But you're the front line, right? Like you're that doorway to the bishop's office many times or the state president's office is like, the first time they've ever uttered these words a lot of the time, right? They feel like if you can create a safe environment there, it, that can be a, a gateway to so much hope and resources, but you have to talk about it. It's right? huge. And this is certainly true in our church, but in our work at the foundation, we find it even outside of our church that ecclesiastical leaders, no matter what faith you are, are often that first point of contact for disclosing um, something as serious as sexual abuse. Yeah, You're the first one. You might even be before their spouse, their parents. You're the first one to hear out of their mouth, I was sexually abused. And that that is that is a sacred trust because that is a very vulnerable position for a survivor to be in. And they're placing that on your table. And even me working professionally in it, know that I need a lot of other resources than just myself to to help the member deal with what they just put on my table. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's about putting that army around me uh, and putting that army around that member to help them deal with that sacred trust that they just placed on my yeah. desk in my office. Yeah. And I taste me at my mind back to the, this principle, this leadership principle of approachability, like how approachable are you as a leader? And do you really know that? I think in general, most leaders feel like hey, I'm a nice guy, you yeah. know, I, I smile a lot. Like, of course, they're going to, they shouldn't have a problem approaching me, but to really like survey your ward council, your ward, I mean, what am I missing? Like, what more can I do to make this a safe environment so that it's so easy for people to want to come in, in there? And a lot of it is just start the dialogue of these yep. things, right? So give us like a hard, solid application of what does this look like? I'm a bishop and who, who knows where? And okay, I want to, I want to start the dialogue. So do I do a fifth Sunday lesson? Do I, do an awkward testimony and sacrament meeting and, and like, what does it actually look like to start talking about it? I, I can tell you what worked in my stake. 
we did some firesides on what we referred to as teaching healthy sexuality. You know, the church in the 80s really were, was encouraging parents to start talking to their kids about sexual health. Mm-hmm. And because they are, kids were being bombarded by media and things and getting a false perspective on sexual health in general. We as a church have had a really hard time adopting that. Every time I read a talk or see information from the uh, senior leadership on the topic of sex, it's very positive. They use positive words. They use beautiful words. We talk about it negatively. It's kind of the no, 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 bad, bad, bad discussion. Well, when a priesthood leader shifts that and says, hey, we want to talk about the beauties of sexual health. We want to also acknowledge the travesty of sexual abuse. And they do that through Fireside or Fifth Sunday. It really opens up the door for the person that's been abused to say, hey, they get it. They understand this. I think they'll get me if I talk to them. I'm going to take a chance on it. So in our stake, we did firesides. That was our avenue. And by the way, they were the best attended stake firesides we had in the full nine years that we served. So, I mean, you brand it with with these topics right in the title of the fireside, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't sugarcoat it like, we're going to talk about life and the nope. spirit. And We were very direct. <laughs> and we were like, hey, mom and dad, we're going to talk about how you can strengthen your kids around this topic of sexual health. Yeah. We're going to talk about how you can talk to your kids about it using great church resources and other resources that we found that mm-hmm. were were compatible with what we wanted to teach. And then with those fireside that fireside setting, I mean, do you employ you know some of the pro- local professionals in the area to help help out with that, or do you uh, mainly go back to the church resources and yeah. use that as a guide? I've seen both models. Um, we used professionals on our committees to help us gather the information that we were going to present. But we felt strongly as a stake presidency, they needed to hear it straight from our mouths. Hmm. So the three members in the stake presidency delivered the actual content, even though we had a whole committee behind us helping to gather appropriate and accurate content. Yeah. And it's easy. I know I want to just sort of warn leaders that it's easy to sort of get into the mode of like, well, I don't even know what I would say. And yeah, I know there's resources, but I'd probably just make it a train wreck and but even just the action of putting up the post, having the poster in the foyer, like steak fireside night, you know, about, you know, sexual health, yada, yada, yada. Like there's that, maybe that 17 year old girl or boy who thinks like, huh, maybe I'm not the only one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, wait, this discussion is happening. I'm, I'm intrigued, right? And, and it begins to um, encourage them out of isolation a little bit. Like, exactly. oh, maybe there is a resource I can talk to. Because a lot of these victims, they they get into a mode where they think they're the only person in the history of mankind to ever be raped in this way or be abused, right? And that's got not helpful. Yeah, you nailed it. So we talk about uh, awareness, the frontline response. Let's talk about the the dynamic of when that person does come in. And, uh, or, or usually, again, it's not, you know, hopefully you have these firesides and resources, start the dialogue, and then you're going to see some appointments start to pop up on the schedule. But a lot of the times it comes in disguised, right? As an addiction or a habit, you know, an opioid issue that they just can't seem to get across. You think, oh, this person has a behavior that we need to fix, right? And so let's fix that behavior, you know, and then we become an accountability partner. Or so talk us through that the dynamic that's happening there and how we can, if there are uh, survivors of, of sexual abuse that are struggling with those things, how can we get to the root issue so they can get the right help? 
Yeah. It's really important that we as leaders learn how to good, ask good secondary questions. And when they come in and say they're, they're uh, confessing to an opioid addiction, right then at that point is probably not the time to start grilling them, right? They're in a very vulnerable spot. Right at that time, you just want to listen. You just want to hear them out. But at some point in the process, you need to acknowledge and you're going to want to help them acknowledge that, you know, tell me a little bit about how this started, you know? Oh, well, I was 14. Oh, okay. Tell me what was going on in your life during that time. Well, family life wasn't so good. And, you know, I was really struggling. Oh, okay. Tell me a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Some open questions like that. I love the tell me more questions or help me understand questions. They help us stay in a safe place and let the person on the other side of the table opt in to disclosing what they want to disclose. Uh, you want to be really careful in these situations not to put too much pressure on the individual to disclose what happened in their childhood because they may not be ready to. And if you force them to face it, you're probably going to shut down the, the yeah, relationship. Yeah, and then they'll never come back. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So really open-ended, tell me more, help me understand type questions are very, very productive. Yeah. And then for sexual abuse specifically, when someone discloses the sexual abuse, it's critical. You'll hear in the mass media how critical it is to believe them. They're right when they're saying that. This person's in a very vulnerable state. They've just offered up something deeply personal that they're probably very ashamed of. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe them or start asking questions that question whether it's true or not, uh, you're likely going to do a lot of damage. Or or those questions of like, well, you know, why were you in that situation? What were you wearing? Those types of things are not helpful and inappropriate. They're very unproductive and very unhelpful. There's really three things that a survivor needs to hear from us when they disclose. The first is you're not crazy, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, and, And that's part of that I believe you dialogue. You're not crazy right? You're not, it's part of that same thing. It's you're not broken. Not only you're not broken, but there's hope and healing, which is the second thing. Hope and healing are possible, right? So uh, I believe you, you're not crazy and hope and healing are possible are critical messages that they need to hear from us as leaders. And when someone first discloses, don't dig into the details. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you could re-traumatize them you may cause additional problems. Just listen, right? Let them go at their pace. And then your role is, hey, I've got resources. You know, the only questions you should probably ask in that environment when they disclose is, I have resources. Can I help start pointing you to resources that can help you be successful at this? And and I'm here to help you from a spiritual standpoint be successful as well. Yeah, and, and I appreciate what you mentioned early on that, this is a, you know, we've been in the office for five minutes here and we're going to, I'm supposed to ask secondary questions. So here yeah. you go. Like you just sort of let this organically unwind a little bit. You know, you don't have to force, you know, well, let's get down the issue. Probably because you do that because you were you abused as a child, yeah. you know, I'm like I've been in here for five minutes. What are we, what's right? going on? Yeah. <laughs> so, and then, but, and then a lot of these scenarios, this person is coming into the office in the context of repentance. And so it's easy. I've got my I got my repentance hat on. Let's talk about repentance. Let's focus on behaviors. You know, yeah, that that is inappropriate that you're doing that. So let's see what we can do to mitigate some of these behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. And it's easy to sort of stay on that surface, yeah. right? And so, and maybe you just stay there for the first couple of 
of appointments, right? And they're just sort of unloading this stuff. And then later on, you, you know, third, fourth appointment, that's when maybe some secondary questions come in and say, let's just talk about like, tell, tell me about how you were raised or, you know, whatever it is, you know, tell me about your marriage, you know, those types of things. And then you can pinpoint some of these red flags, the core of the issue that, that then that's where the resources get flooded to. You got it. So repentance at its core is change. And if we as priesthood leaders, if that's what we're after is helping this member change, uh, sure. They need to be accountable. You know, there's, if I've chosen to engage in in opioids, no matter what my background is, I have accountability for that, right? Yeah. But if all we do is focus on the accountability side of repentance and forget about the change side, which is really the core of what repentance yeah. is, is change, we're, we're missing the mark. And I can guarantee you, even if they stop the opioid addiction, if they don't deal with early childhood trauma, uh, it will just shift to another maladaptive behavior Yeah, that they'll have to deal with five years from now. So you can't just stay on the behavior level. That, that doesn't create lasting change. And sometimes it's deceiving when the behavior gets better. It's like, yeah. oh, okay, we're in a good spot now. All right, thanks for coming in. And yeah. like you said, three years later, three months later, it'll shift or it'll manifest itself somewhere else because there's so there's that trauma has to get buried somewhere. Exactly. Right? You got yeah. it. Yeah, I don't mean to always default to like the bishop's office or stake president's office because that's, you know, one person. But like we said, it, it can be such a, if we, you can make that a safe place, that can be a place with some good boundaries where people can open up about these things. But what would you say to a youth leader or elders quorum president, or at least society president? Um, obviously, you know, a youth leader isn't, uh, you know, they're going to be with other people as they should be, right? And so is it just a general discussion that, that, helps and then pointing them to the, the right resource or the bishop's office? The, the same principles apply of being a safe place. And any other leader can deal with all aspects of responding to a disclosure of sexual trauma. If there's a secondary disclosure of something that the member feels they need to repent of, that does belong in the bishop's purview, right? Mm-hmm. But everything else, every other leader can have the resources, they can coach them through, they can tackle them through. They don't necessarily need to refer them to the bishop. In fact, you know, if I were in a warden as a bishop, I, w- I would want my young women's leader to handle a disclosure of abuse on their own. Yeah. And I would want to empower her to be able to do that. Mm, so that. the same principles we've talked about for bishops or state presidents apply to every other leader in the church, that you can be that safe person. And if you'll arm yourself with good resources— not only will people come forward to you because you're a safe person, but you'll feel equipped to handle it when they do. And in fact, I would tell you the two individuals in the ward that have sexual abuse disclosed to them the most are the young women's president and the relief society president Mm. by far. Yeah. And so those two leaders in, in particular, it's important to arm yourself with these capabilities and, uh, don't buy, I mean, you don't need to refer to the bishop if there's not a matter of repentance. And most disclosures of sexual abuse, there's not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, or even if there is, like, we can get to that way down the road. Yeah. Right. We don't, that doesn't have to be the exactly. starting place. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you mentioning that so much. I'll, I'll come to, we got Dan in the room. He's our studio audience. He's got a question. So, um, but uh, <laughs> just the, because, uh, there's probably a youth leader listening, thinking, oh, Chris, this is great and all, but if you knew my bishop, I don't necessarily feel comfortable 
you know, sending anybody to, for, for these really sensitive issues, you know, not that he's, he just may not handle it well, or he'll say the wrong thing or whatever. And so really, I think it's really helpful for a ward council to maybe wrestle with the idea of like, how do we create opportunities of disclosure? Because at the same time, maybe, you know, if there's a young woman in the, in the ward who really trusts their young women leader, but you know, too deep leadership, right? They're never alone with them or they're never in a scenario where they feel comfortable doing that. So it takes a, a process of training the youth, you know, first starting the dialogue and saying, hey, here's how you may go about disclosing. If, mm-hmm. if you trust somebody, here's how you do that. And so, and I don't know exactly how that would be, but how would you respond to that as far as like creating these opportunities of disclosure uh, in, in a ward community? Yeah, so disclosure is almost always tied to relationships. So it's no different than anything else we do as leaders to build relationships mm-hmm. with our members. Those that we have stronger relationships with, they're more likely to disclose. And it's okay for us as leaders when someone discloses to say, if all we say is, you know, thank you for telling me. I can't imagine how hard that is. I'm not sure what to do right now, but I'm not going to leave you alone. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go to work and figure out how to help. Just give me a little bit of time. I'm here for you. If that's all you can do, that's enough. So I don't know that there's a specific environment you need to set up for disclosure or a specific place you need to set up for disclosure. I don't think that's as critical as the relationship and the trust that you need to build. They'll disclose to you on a girl's camp. They'll disclose to you on in the car. They'll disclose to you. Maybe uh, a quick text message. Quick text get, message. Yeah. You name it. They'll just They'll find a way, right? Different ways, but that right? relationship is pivotal. It's pivotal and that's key. And much like we talked about earlier, um, being willing to acknowledge the problem and say, hey, this exists and I want to do something about it is really the most critical thing to yeah. do to invite disclosure. Yeah. And it's tricky because I think a lot of people will want to say, well, you know, they should just, uh, that's, the, that's the parent job you know like they should go to their parent but sometimes the parent is the perpetrator right and exactly because like you said it's usually people that are close to them so all right dan we're coming to you here's a mic dan duckworth board member leading saints uh studio audience member so i'm sitting here listening i'm thinking okay so if if there's a disclosure to a relief society president or a young women president or whoever else who's not the bishop or the stake president and you've just said that's okay that's that's you know even happening more often than not is there an obligation for that young women's president to disclose to the bishop? Maybe she doesn't refer to the bishop. She says, I'll be your spiritual guide through this. But is there a responsibility for her to disclose to the bishop that she has received this information and that she's working on it? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question and delicate question. From my perspective, I would say, no, there's not an obligation. It's not a matter of repentance. It's not a matter of worthiness. There's no legal obligation. There's no there, legal yeah. obligation. Now, with that said, the young women leader that say that it, where it's disclosed from a youth to her, there is a legal obligation for her to report. Yeah. And she may need the bishop's assistance in contacting the church's abuse helpline. So in those cases, when you're dealing with a minor, it's different. But if I'm dealing with an adult that's disclosing, there's no obligation. If I'm dealing with a minor, it's driven by each individual state or country law. And those vary from state to state and country to country. For us here in Utah, a youth leader would have an obligation to report. But we also have the church's abuse helpline that can help all of us as leaders 
to know what our obligation is. So my recommendation and strong encouragement is anytime you're dealing with a minor, you do have a responsibility to call the church's abuse helpline. And they have professionals that know laws, know each state's specific laws that are prepared to help that member know what their obligation is. Yeah. But for an adult, there's not an obligation. So a lot of times when victims of abuse come forward, one of the things they're most worried about is confidentiality. They don't want the word to get out, right? So is it viable then for a young women president or even a Relief Society president to utilize the the church's abuse hotline without having to divulge information that was shared with them in confidence to another local leader that might, you know, betray the confidence that the abuse victim put in them? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would let the church's abuse hotline answer that question. There's so many variations in state laws and country laws that it's hard to give a blanket answer to that question. But the church's abuse helpline's right there in the handbook. Yeah, not yeah and, just, that's, and that's different from the bishop helpline, right? Yeah, so there's yeah. priesthood leader helplines uh-huh. and there's church abuse helpline. If the priesthood leader needs to get involved, the church abuse helpline would tell that young women's president, hey, we've got to get your bishop involved here. Yeah. And I would default to them to make the call on that. Yeah, it's in the handbook. In the handbook. You can find it there. But in worst case scenario, and we can link to it, but worst case scenario, just call the church switch line and just yeah. say, this is where I need to go. And they're always They'll helpful. direct you right yeah. to it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, awesome resources and, and really helpful. Let's talk just generally uh, resources that are out there. You know, church, you've mentioned the church puts together some great resources that are on the app, online. Anything else you'd mention there? Yeah, I would just say, and maybe this is a, a podcast for another day, but there's a whole nother side of this of how do we prevent it to begin oh, with, yeah. right? Today, we focused on how to respond to well, it. Let's go there for a minute. Okay. we got some time to, to fill here. So. Okay. So the church has a great website and the specific URL, if you just go to churchofjesuschrist.org and, and search the word abuse, it will take you to that subpage. Yeah. They've got a great resource there that helps us know how to respond to abuse, how to prevent abuse. But there's also a lot of other great resources in our foundation. We have a whole entire brand called Defend Innocence, and it it's targeted at moms and dads and helps educate moms and dads what they can do to reduce the likelihood that their child will be sexually abused. So there's tons of resources there as well. And our foundation is not uh, specific to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's non-denominational. And so people of all walks of life come and use our resources. And uh, you can share them. They're easy to share. Uh, They're easy to share with parents in your neighborhood, in your carpool, you know, at the daycare, in the workplace, you name it, uh, you can share it. And there's a ton of things we can do as parents to reduce the risk that our kids will be abused. Yeah. And that's the the tragedy of it all is like you said, you can be a super awesome, almost perfect parent 99.9999% of the time. It just takes one evening at a sleepover to change, you know, it may be a 10 minute interaction with, with somebody who does coerces something inappropriately that one instance will change their life forever unless right. it's addressed appropriately. And and still, I mean, there's just like no way out of it until the, the, the healing uh, atonement of Jesus Christ, you know, heals us perfectly. You know, yeah. it's just, it's, that's that one moment. And so we, nobody's protected from it. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's a scary side of this and a hopeful side of it. The scary side of it is I, as a parent, I have six kids myself 
I live and breathe this every day. My child could be sexually abused. Mm -hmm. There's no way to eliminate the risk. That's scary as a parent. We want to control our kids' experiences and help them avoid experiences that would be difficult like this. So that's the scary part, and we have to acknowledge that. The hopeful side is there's a lot I can do that reduces the likelihood that it will happen to my child. Mm -hmm. And if I'll just take a little time as a parent to educate myself through the resources the church has provided, through the resources we provide to defend innocence— there's a lot I can do. There is a lot in my control that reduces the likelihood that oh, my child will be abused. And if they still are abused, there's a lot I can do in how I respond to that that can significantly reduce the long-term impact of it. So if my child is abused, it's not like there's an equation that says they're going to have a horrific life. It's when that abuse isn't addressed and processed and it's swept under the rug that's when the PTSD sets in. That's when the secondary behavior set in like drug addiction or suicide or alcoholism or eating disorders. So even if my child does go through abuse, not all is lost. The way I respond to that abuse can make a significant difference on their ability to move on and live a normal, healthy life. Yeah. That's that's really helpful. So anything else in the realm of prevention, you know, from a, a church leader standpoint, we've talked about it, you know, the church has given us great guidelines to deep leadership and other things. I mean, and, and definitely take those really seriously. They're not just like suggestions or, hey, now you can, uh, there's more callings for people. You can, you know, that's not why they do it. Like it's to, to prevent and, and help people from uh, avoiding abuse, but any other from the, the prevention, because it can feel like, no, my word's pretty good. Like I don't, I don't think we got creepers here. Like we're good. Like any anything else you did. Yeah, I would just say there's not a ward in the world that doesn't deal with this issue. So acknowledging it is important mm-hmm. and realizing that it happens everywhere is important. What I would say, though, to your question that I think is critical is this. There's a lot of things we as priesthood leaders can talk about with our members. There's a lot of problems we need to address on a fifth Sunday or a fireside or yeah. in our ward counts or whatever. In my opinion, this one is worth your time. And you as a priesthood leader, a bishop, a Relief Society president, investing in prevention, investing in helping parents learn what they can do to reduce the risk that their children will be abused, you will never reap the rewards of that, Mm -hmm. right? Because the impacts are 20 years later, 30 years later. But there's a bishop and a state president and a Relief Society He's a deacon right now. But when he's a bishop, he'll he'll thank you for it. (laughs) There's a young women's president that 30 years from now— uh, you'll make their job 10 times easier and uh, make their burden 10 times lighter and allow them to focus on teaching the gospel of Christ and faith because their congregation aren't dealing with some of these issues because you took action now. Yeah, And that's hard. It's hard to make that investment because we want the short-term right. results. Yeah. But these, this is a long-term yeah. investment. And, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I would encourage any priesthood leader to put this on your list as things to consider yeah. addressing in your ward. Cause that's an interesting state. dynamic is when we do see these behavioral manifestations of pornography or, you know, whatever it is. And we think, well, man, Jimmy's got only got 18 months till his mission. We got to get this, this fixed, you know? And, and mm-hmm. so it's easy to sort of, sort of try and get through these things. All right, just stop doing that behavior and let's get you on the mission and that, that should fix it. But yeah. to really slow it down and realize, no, I'm going to create a culture and environment that when Jimmy is 40, He's a good father yeah. and he can hold a job and, you know, he's, he's not uh, paralyzed by, by this trauma in his life. And, and that goes a long way. Right. Yeah. And we've all seen that Jimmy will go on a mission. He'll have a successful mission 
but Jimmy, when he's 30, the pornography addiction comes back yeah. almost every time. Right. It's like clockwork. Or, or and, we hear that Jimmy left the church and yeah. they go, oh, he got a hold of that material. Yeah. You know, he, yeah, darn it. You know, but no, it's like, no, this was a 20 year journey that yeah. led Jimmy to this point where he made a decision that's going to impact his, his salvation or his, you know, his covenants he's made and things like yeah. that. And so it's a long game. And that's, it is a long game. And that's all right. Um, another thing, you know, you mentioned the, the importance that you felt that, you know, you needed your members to hear it from your mouth. I am talking about this. You see me saying abuse? Yes, we're talking about this, right? And that's important. But on the other hand, there's probably other local experts and or people with a, a strong perspective on this. I know you go around to, to different stakes and wards and, and talk about it. Uh, any any advice or where to send people to find individuals who could come and do a Fifth Sunday lesson or that, those types of things? Yeah, so... The key here is understand that not all mental health professionals, or which are really the professionals that address abuse and trauma, mm-hmm. uh, focus on sexual abuse. It's not a, sometimes we treat mental health professionals like they're a jack of all trades, yeah. that they're good at, well, they can do marriage counseling and deal with addiction and deal with sexual trauma. It's really not the case, especially with sexual trauma. You need to find someone that specializes in it. That's predominantly what they deal with. It's nuanced and different enough from a lot of other life issues. That if they don't specialize in it, they probably won't be super helpful for your members. So as you're working on your connections with, you know, therapists in your area or professionals in your area that you want to draw on, for this particular one, I would strongly encourage a church leader to find someone that specializes it. And, you know, you just need to, if you call a therapist and say, hey, do you help people with sexual trauma? They'll all say yes. You need to ask a few more questions, Right. right? So. It's more like, hey, I'm looking for someone that specializes. This is almost all they do. Is that you? If so, if not, can you refer me to someone? Yeah. That that's where their focus yeah. is. And obviously, we have lots of great resources, even for church leaders on our our websites that you can draw on as well. Yeah, and, and most good, I've found most therapists, you know, most good therapists, they'll say, you know, that's just not my thing. Uh, but let me, I've got three people you could reach out to. You yeah. know, so so don't be surprised if they say that. Any other point before we we wrap up here that we didn't hit on that you want to make sure we, we hit on before we, we wrap up? I think the biggest thing is just know as leaders you can you can make a difference and and to see uh, an individual heal from something they've been carrying for thirty years um, is one of the most rewarding things I've experienced as a priesthood leader and to see the impact on their family to have a uh, husband come to me and say, wow, our family has changed, right? This isn't just about the one member. It's about the family and then the family impacting society. This problem is a family-based problem. The solution has to be a family-based problem. And I think that's important for us to recognize as, as church leaders. Um, if people do want to know more about Unique's foundation and and maybe explain where to go to do that, and then what sort of uh, tool or resource is it? I mean, what are they going to find? Do they call you? Do they just yeah. read on your website? Good Take question. So if you're trying to help someone heal, I encourage people to go to uniquefoundation.org. Spell and we'll link to that. Yeah. yeah Y-O-U-N-I-Q-U-E foundation.org. There you're going to find resources for what we refer to as supporters. A priesthood leader is a supporter of a survivor of abuse. So look for those supporter resources. There's a lot on them. Mm. If I'm looking as a priesthood leader, how do I, how do I prevent this? I would uh, encourage you to go to, to defendinnocence.org. And there you'll see very specific resources for parents 
and then for community leaders. So if you want to look at resources from the perspective of a parent, uh, you can go that path. Or if you want to look at resources from the perspective of a community leader, you can look at it from that perspective. Awesome. Uh, last question I have is, as you just reflect on your your journey with Unique and you know the Unique Foundation and this work you've been involved in in helping create resources for survivors of abuse, uh, how has that leadership role made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? That's uh, an awesome question. I think one of the key words from the New Testament that you see over and over again from the Savior's teachings is the word compassion. And um, my experience in helping survivors is I am a far more compassionate person than I was before I started helping people. Uh, When I see someone struggling with a drug addiction, I go, something happened in their life that was devastating and they're doing their best to cope with it. And I feel that compassionate desire to help rather than to judge, to say, when are you going to get off the street and get your life together? Right? Those are very different perspectives. and. That's what's changed in my life. And I'm not saying I was a jerk before. I, I, I like to think I wasn't a total jerk, but I'm definitely a lot more compassionate today than I was before I started this work. That concludes my interview with Chris Yaden. A big shout out to him. Sure to appreciate uh, him bringing his perspective, his expertise uh, to this conversation. I found it so helpful and I hope you were inspired by this and and maybe you're already thinking of ways that you can start a dialogue in your, not only your ward and stake, but also in your families, right? We, that's where the, a lot of these dialogues start to begin to uh, remove the shame, prevent and just be on top of this uh, this epidemic that is in our communities, whether we like it or not. And this is, we need to fight to, to push it out. There's such great evil in all this. And uh, we do have resources and power to make a difference there. If there's any other organization resource that maybe we should add to our list of resources as we discuss these topics of, of sexual abuse on Leading Saints community, please email me. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, put in a quick message and uh, send it our way. And we'd love to consider that. I really do believe there's a future summit, a virtual summit around this topic that is needed. And uh, I'd be honored to, to participate in that and, and put some calls out for people who could really speak to the different uh, nuances and perspectives when it comes to sexual abuse because we need to be prepared as leaders as latter-day saint leaders be prepared to to prevent but also to talk about it remove the shame create opportunities of disclosure and uh, see if we can connect resources to to the victims who are struggling and who totally need help and I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.